The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. And by NatureBox. NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Hello. 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 <laughs> Hi. Okay, I'm going to do this right. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Uh, we've got a, a busy a busy show's worth of, of stuff to do, and uh, Sarah has has places to go. Um, but uh, you Sarah's know, pretty busy. I got a lot going she's on. She's a busy a busy person. I'm not as busy. I always have time for the weeds, though. If you are not that busy and want to listen to some other podcasts, um, you you might want to check out uh, Masha Gessen is the guest this week on the Ezra Klein show. Ezra Klein is also here to my left. Um, she's a, an expert on on Russia authoritarianism. It's funny. Uh, I rarely think of myself as to your left. Vladimir Putin. I mean, only literally. Um, uh, yeah, Gessen has written a great biography of Vladimir Putin. She's been writing a bunch of great pieces in the New York Review of Books looking at Donald Trump through the Russian lens. She's a Russian-American journalist, so has a real sort of fascinating uh, perspective of someone who has covered politics in an autocracy and, and applies that to, to Trump. But she's also become a little bit disillusioned with what she sees as the rise of conspiratorial thinking on the left around Trump and Russia and the sort of hope that this will be a deus ex machina that, that destroys the Trump administration. So we sort of talk about all things Russia and Trump. It, it, it's a fun conversation. I think Weeds listeners will like it. Meanwhile, they have the show The Americans, a kind of fictional story in which Russian intelligence has only very low level access to, to the American government. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the, the, the showrunners, uh, Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, are Todd Vanderwerf's guests uh, on, on his podcast. I think you're interesting. Uh, it's it's really one of the one of the best shows of, of recent time and has become uh, oddly politically relevant. Uh, sure to be a fascinating conversation. Also, because all things with Russia are a conspiracy. Masha Gessen turns out to be the translator for Russian on Whoa. the Americans. Whoa. I know. It's crazy. Whoa. It all ties together. This week. On the weeds, however, we are going to be ignoring Russia in all of its aspects and talking about the subject of healthcare. It's never really come up on the weeds and, before. And corruption in the Obama administration. Yes. We're going to talk about healthcare, talk about uh, so, some interesting research on, on the Obama administration, uh, but, but exciting things are happening in the States. But we are not going to talk about congressional Republicans in healthcare. Yeah, we're going to important. leave that behind because we are going to talk about people who are actually passing policies. And those are people who, a lot of shade. <laughs> who work in state legislatures right now. So I actually remember we did our very first episode of The Weeds ever was about single payer. And it was more of like a theoretical discussion looking at like the benefits and the trade-offs. Like in theory, how could this work? You know, about, I guess it's a year and a half later, we actually have two really interesting state-level examples of what single-payer could look like in the United States. So the two we're going to focus on, the two I found really interesting, the first is California, which has gotten a lot of attention for this single-payer bill that it moved through its um, state Senate. It has not moved through the Assembly yet. Um, the governor there has been a little – has had some concerns about the bill. But this is kind of the traditional – when weeds listeners think of single-payer, it's probably something like – the California plan where everyone moves on to the same health care plan. It looks a lot like Canada. Um, you know, you have everyone getting coverage through one plan offered by the government. And I think this California plan has gotten a lot of attention because it made it through the state Senate. There have been two analyses that show, you know, how much it would cost. It would you know, lead to a very large tax increase in order to finance a bill like this. Um, and I think there is some warranted skepticism of the numbers in those reports that they might actually be underestimating the cost. Both of those reports were um, sponsored by people who support this bill. So there's some reason to believe that they're relatively optimistic cost estimates. So that's California. It would really kind of turn the state into a Canadian-style single-payer system. More generous, even. Really. More, no, generous, way more generous. Way more generous. So this is so, – so we'll get into California a little bit. But a, a few months ago, I came across what I actually think is a way more – realistic and interesting approach to uh, expanding government health care. And it's happening in Nevada, which is like not the state you think of as like the hotbed of like progressive activism. So I was a little surprised to see this bill go you so far. You are about to get so much shit from progressive activists No, in you should, because I'm working on a story about <laughs> progressive activism in Nevada. So if you are a progressive activist, tell me why your state is such a hotbed of activity. Um, please email me at sarah at fox.com. This is, this is sprinkle care we're talking this about, This is right? so, yes. Yeah, so Nevada has... Oh, I love it. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. So Nevada has this bill that is passed through the state legislature, is going to the governor's desk, that would essentially create a Medicaid buy-in. It would let anyone who wants to sign up for the Medicaid program. So a lot of times we've talked about Medicare for all at the national level. This would essentially be Medicaid for all. It is sponsored by a state representative there named Mike Sprinkle. Um, he told me sometimes people now call it Sprinkle Care. Which that is makes, all I'm going to call this. Which makes me think that really you get like, like a cupcake when you enroll. Um, and that's just, uh, you know, really delightful. But it's a really interesting and surprising approach that we haven't actually seen any state experiment with, which really surprises me that like Connecticut or Maryland or some of these states that tend to have reliably liberal governments, you know, didn't get to this first. Um, and it would basically let anyone who wants to enroll into the state Medicaid program. There I have a first order yes. question on this for yes. you. Can a state do that on its own? No. Um, so that's a great question. So this is something that even if the governor signs it, I'd say there still would be questions of whether it be enacted. Some of the big questions are how much do you charge for a premium to buy Medicaid? How do you set that price? Do people on the Medicaid buy-in get access to federally mandated drug discounts that Medicaid gets? Will the Trump administration let Nevada expand a program that it is trying to slash in half? So there is a lot of uncertainty. So right now, the biggest kind of first order uncertainty is will the governor sign it? I've asked his office. They didn't respond. He hasn't said anything that I've seen in the press. Um, He is kind of a moderate Republican. So we don't totally know where he is at on this issue. Even if he does sign it, there's a lot of questions. Will the federal government give them the waivers? How do you actually structure something like this? And, you know, since I wrote my story on Tuesday, I've got some people saying like, well, here's this hurdle and here's that hurdle. And how do they solve that? And it's completely true. There's a lot of things that haven't been solved. But I think the way they actually get thought through and see if they are solvable problems are actually like passing a bill like this and then working towards enactment. I think to to understand the distinction between like what they're trying to do in California and, and what they're trying to do in Nevada. I think it's helpful to think along like two different dimensions of difference, right? One is the buy-in model versus the the government funding model, right? Where so California is basically saying they have to work out exactly the details of it, but everyone is going to pay a lot more taxes, but in exchange everyone is going to get free health insurance from the government. So, you know, Already, you are sort of implicitly paying a lot for health insurance if you're insured. That's going to become an explicit tax. Uh, you know, so it's a it's a it's a very large fiscal change, even if the, the economic change isn't that big. Whereas uh, Nevada is proposing to say you could take the money that you are already spending on health insurance and instead take that to get yourself into the government program, right? So in principle, you could do Medicare through the buy-in structure, or you could do Medicaid through the government pays it structure. But that's one difference is that Nevada is a buy-in, less explicit taxes. Then the other is Medicare versus Medicaid, which there's a lot of relevant differences, but but the main one is reimbursement rates, right? So that like when people will tell you, oh, a single-payer system could actually save money, what that means is that most countries that use single-payer systems uh, use that sort of government monopoly to say, well, we're going to pay pharmaceutical makers, hospitals, doctors less than they get paid in America. Uh, Medicare already has that structure. It pays less than private health insurance does. Medicaid pays even less than Medicare does. So it's it's sort of cheap, but at the same time, you know, the less you're willing to pay doctors, the more healthcare providers are willing to turn patients away. So you can think about the the cost estimates for for California, right? In part, have to do with well, how much is the state really going to squeeze healthcare providers, right? Whereas Nevada's approach is like saying right from the go, like there's going to be a lot of squeezing of healthcare providers. Right. right. And just to bring some like numbers to this, so the California approach, they right now they're proposing they would just use Medicare rates. So they would say, we're going to pay doctors what Medicare pays. It's kind of in the middle of Medicaid and private insurance. We think it's a fine deal. I don't fully know how California doctors would react to that. Um, but Not positively, Izzy. I, <laughs> so I assure t- you is the answer. Um, and then in Nevada, one of the things you see is um, Medicaid in Nevada pays 81% of what Medicare pays using like a cut on top of that. So that's one of the ways you get to so, ideally lower premiums. So I want to add in just some other 
big differences here that I, I want to make sure that we just put in as a frame in this conversation. One is that we're looking at a difference between like a big bang single payer transformation in California, if they passed it, and in Nevada, a, a, a slow transition in which maybe it never gets to single payer, right? It's just there's a Medicaid buy-in option. So in California, the way that bill is structured, I believe, if I'm reading it correctly, a an insurer could not offer insurance duplicating the coverage of right. the California plan. So, I mean, this is really much more like a Canadian plan where you don't have private insurance anymore. If you work for Facebook in California – and you enjoy whatever gold-plated coverage Facebook gets you. Now, it's possible there is going to be secondary insurance or supplementary insurance. It gets you, you know, an even better, better deal. But you are – it's done. Um, like the private insurance, like you, you make it small enough to drown it in a bathtub. Right. I think one key difference is like your network becomes the same as anyone else. Like right, exactly. you end up getting access to now, the same Now, it's incredibly – I mean, for that reason, I think they've structured the um, proposal as being like – incredibly generous, much more generous than any single payer system that I know of is, right? They have to cover anything a medical provider deems necessary. There are no copays. There are no deductibles. Um, the the Senate Appropriations Committee has like a – not really an analysis but a description of the plan where they're just like, we have no way to control costs in this structure. But but So that's a big bang single payer and, and Nevada isn't. And then there's also just I think this pretty interesting issue of just transition. The California plan doesn't really have a transition. That's something that is left completely open. Um, the Nevada plan is all transition. It never has an end state. And so just those are really different ways of imagining what you're doing here. One is sort of allowing people to choose to opt into a single payer plan. You know, if you think of how the Nevada thing would get you towards something like single payer, it's that Medicaid is cheaper. People like it and people would over time choose it more and more and more often till it becomes less and less profitable for insurers to remain in the system because they're competing at such a price disadvantage that they begin to collapse. Um, the, the single payer plan in California is just like it's just done. There's no there's no private insurance to speak of anymore. So that just seems that's just a big deal. Right. I, I mean, Nevada and California, it's also worth saying, are very different uh, states, very different kind of state economies. And if you did something like a universal Medicaid buy-in in California, I think lots and lots and lots of Californians wouldn't take it. Uh, California is a, a relatively affluent state with a number of like really big cities and like huge globally competitive companies. And like Google and Facebook and Apple in the like war for programmer talent are not going to try to like save some money by enrolling their their staff in Medicaid, even if that option became available. Uh, whereas Nevada is a, is a below average income state, very heavily service economy, um, has a lot of people and employers who I think would genuinely benefit from like cheap, sort of workable, basic health insurance, even if, you know, affluent people might still sort of opt out, choose for something that would that would give them broader options. But there there's a sort of like logic to it. Although the logic that goes in the other direction is that you know, one issue that that I think Vermont had to think about when they were considering single pay or most states need to think about is, you know, is this unit of government really like big enough to do those low reimbursements without sending providers like fleeing across the border. California, I mean, the reason why I, I think there's a lot of detail kind of issues with this bill, but broadly speaking, like I think California should should go for something big on this because California is so big. You know, I mean, I sometimes hear uh, single payer proponents say like, well, you can't do this at, at the state level. Um, but California, for example, is much, much larger than like Sweden. Um, and, you know, and frankly, uh, Finland, the, the other Nordic countries are – they're not only smaller than California, but they participate in a currency union with the EU that constrains them from doing deficit spending and stuff like that. California is a bigger economy than – is it a bigger economy than Canada? If I not, would, it's close. I mean it's it's more people. Um, so, you know, it's not just economically bigger, but the – European countries are able to pull this off under the same kinds of constraints that California would be facing. And and it seems to me that it would be, you know, worth their while, since California is such a progressive state, yeah. to bigger economy than Canada. Sorry. Right. To to try to work this out, right? That if Canadian doctors aren't all 
decamping for Chicago and Seattle, that California should be able to come up with something workable here. I think this program that they've written down may be a little too uh, sudden in its approach, probably a little more generous in its coverage than you're really going to want to do. There's a legislative process for that, but but it seems like really actually appropriate for me, for California legislators, to be thinking about, like, big sky, how do we really want to do this? Whereas Nevada is honestly a state that has a a little bit less, like, going for it in terms of its intrinsic strengths and maybe appropriately wants to be a little bit more cautious with its changes and take advantage of, you know, urgent need to, like, make sure that low-income people have access to health Yeah, and this kind of shapes how I think about, like, if either of these passed, how they might ripple through the country. So I think you're totally right. It's really a different ballgame doing single payer in California than it was in Vermont. Like in Vermont, like let's say you're a doctor in Burlington and like you don't like, you know, I think it's called like Green Mountain Care. You just like drive two hours and move to New Hampshire. Like you know, there are so many places you could go without like really uprooting yourself. Like it would still and particularly be particularly dealing a with pharmaceutical companies, right? Sure. Which is supposed to be one yeah. thing. Like you could walk away from Vermont as yes. a pharmaceutical like company. Like California, you're a doctor in San Francisco, you're a doctor in Los Angeles. Like you're really going to have to go far to like get out. And you could go to Nevada where they have the Medicaid buy-in or something. But um, you really there's it just isn't as easy. And I think. The scale of it suggests, like, I think Matt's right that, like, California could do it. There's also a bill moving through the New York legislature right now that's also been getting a little bit of attention. And those seem like the places that I think could really pull this off because they are so large, because it is very hard for doctors to, you know, get out get out of those places and kind of, like, maintain whatever life they've set up there. Um, but for that reason, it seems really hard to see how a California system, like, might scale. One thing you could think of is like other states tacking on. Like one thing I've thought about is if you have like a left coast single payer system where like Oregon and Washington kind of like layer on top of California and all of a sudden you have like this trio of liberal states that are part of this continuum and they can kind of like leverage what California has done. But it's really hard to see for me like how it would move eastward from there, Um, like whether smaller states in the Midwest would have the political interest or the ability to kind of hang on to their medical um, community. The other path you could see it taking is like the Massachusetts path where one state does it really well, or actually that's the Canada path too, where you have like one state, one province do it really well. And then the national government gets interested. Um, Nevada, I think, cause it's more um, gradual is really the opposite where you could see it like spreading to like a really random array of states who are just like interested in this idea. I think particularly states right now that, are starting to see holes in their Obamacare marketplaces. Like right now we have Missouri has a number of counties with no Obamacare insurers. Um, Ohio, we just found out, has 20 counties where no one wants to sell coverage next year. And Medicaid buy-in like doesn't really require as much scale, I think, because it's so gradual. And so that's when I could see really moving, like cropping up in like a weird random way in a number of states due to like the actual characteristics of the state. It seems more replicable in other places than um, the California approach might be. So two thoughts on this. One thing that I think is interesting about the difference between big bang single payer and something like a Medicaid buy-in is that the Medicaid buy-in model creates a mechanism by which the provider networks can kill it, which is to say that imagine you do the Medicaid buy-in model in, in Nevada. And provider networks look at that and say, this is this is an existential threat, right? We do not want to move to a cost structure where we are subsisting on Medicaid payment rates. We're willing to do that for the poor. It was a bit of a stretch when, you know, Obamacare expanded it, but Obamacare also came with increases in Medicaid payment rates, so that, you know, and more people, so there was, you know, there's some kind of trade-off here. But but we're afraid of this. In that world, what you would do, and and we have, I mean, you've seen this in other countries. I mean, there there, there are examples of this on small scales. They could stop accepting Medicaid, right? They would just move their provider mix to private insurance. Um, And, you know, people talk about that happening right now in Medicaid. It has not happened in very large numbers, but it does happen on the margin. There are providers out there who will not accept Medicaid or who will not accept new Medicaid patients particularly. You do see that quite a bit. And so one thing that in in California, under this bill, if you want to be in California, if you want to live in California, which a lot of people do, um, I used to live in California. It's quite nice. Uh, You have to 
you have to be part of the plan, right? There's just nothing else you can do, really. I will um, say I find some of the concerns about people accepting Medicaid a little overblown when you look at the data. Like, just some data I was looking at when I was writing the Nevada story is I think it's like 85% of providers say they're accepting new private insurance, 70% say Medicaid. Right. So there is a difference, but and I'm I just want to say it's not like I, a dire situation. That if, that if industry began to think Medicaid was a threat to them, right, mm-hmm. it was like a step towards full single payer, you could imagine that going sure. up and it creates more of a two-tiered system. I'm, I don't think that's a reason not to do it. I just want to note that that's one of the things that is an attraction of bigger single payer proposals. They don't allow this kind of um, insure shopping that, that, that could be a danger to the thing. The other thing that I was struck by studying these proposals that, that in my sort of – I knew but I didn't know was actually how much any state-based transition to single-payer or something like single-payer relies on the federal government allowing it. So in California, more than half of the healthcare spending is coming through the federal government. So they need the federal government to give them a waiver allowing them to take all that money that is routed through Medicare, that is routed through Medicaid. Um, I don't remember if they use a VA in here. Potentially, it's routed Obama through Obamacare subsidies, Obamacare subsidies. Uh, so it requires I, those subsidies staying in I place. I believe, if I read the thing right, it also wants to cash out the employer-provided health care tax break. Really? Oh, I, wow. Something I, something I read in, in the oh, – there's man. an analysis by four professors at like Amherst, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, UMass Amherst, yes. I, I think if I was interpreting that right, they I think were were talking about doing that. I don't know for sure. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to stake. But it is all to say that one, the federal government would have to agree to all that, right? Agree to letting them use the Medicare rates, but also agree to letting them use all the money. Then secondarily, the federal government has regulation over a bunch of these aspects of the system. Um, ERISA, which I'm not going to try to remember what the acronym stands for. I, I could see you trying. <laughs> <laughs> Employee retirement insurance something it, something. Um, uh, I thought it was ERISA, though. Might be ERISA. That's uh, all I got. But anyway, it, it is a it's a bill that uh, gives the federal government, um, among other things, regulatory control over self insured employers, and millions of employers in California self insure. So they would need an ERISA waiver in order to cash that insurance out, in order to have regulatory authority over over that piece of the market. Um, so there's just a lot here that the federal government would have to say yes to. Uh, you could imagine, you know, an Obama administration or Hillary Clinton administration possibly saying yes to these things, right? They are, you know, maybe they would prove not to be, right? But conceptually, they're in favor of experimenting with things like single payer. Um, but but even they might be pushed back by pharmaceutical lobbies and, and other things. The Trump administration or some other Republican administration, the Mike Pence administration, would not allow this at all. And so one of just the interesting things in all of this is that to make any of the numbers work here, you really do need that federal money to be rerouted to your control. And for all that Republicans are like for federalism, I don't think that virtually any of them would allow this. And I will add Nevada is in a similar situation where they also need a waiver to let people buy into Medicaid. They don't need the money. So it's a smaller ask. You're basically saying like these people will finance it. But again, it's like hard for me. And they, you know, Representative Sprinkle has told me that um, his conversations with HHS have so far been positive. But obviously, like he's not going to say, like, actually, we think this is doomed to go nowhere right. with the federal government. But, but in the um, third dependency on that, that, I just want to note is that you are also because you are because you're relying on the federal government funding streams, you're actually relying on those funding streams remaining relatively stable. Yes. So right now, Republicans are trying to pass what is it, eight hundred and no, it's more. Some um, massive. I think it's one point four trillion Medicaid's in Medicaid cuts. In half. I think it's one point yes. four trillion in Medicaid cuts. That would really fuck up one of these plans because they're expecting that they have that money to work with and they have that level of reimbursement and match and et cetera. If they don't have that, that means they have to raise taxes by even more. And, and these tax increases are high, even in these relatively rosy estimates. You're looking at the single payer plan in California costing more than the California budget costs in a year. Um, states projected spending is $180 billion next year. The Appropriation Committee has a $400 billion estimate on this plan. That, that's a very big tax so- increase. So okay, a, a couple of points that that that, that I think are, are important there. Um, what, one is that, I mean, on a political level, that's all sort of like a reason for California Democrats to plow ahead with this because it means that, in a sense, you don't need to actually worry about the full workability of some of these details. You're going to pass it. You're going to come up with some waivers. The Trump administration is going to block you. Then you're going to get to have a. Um, I think would be uh, use politically useful for Democrats to be able to settle on 
we need the next president to allow states to experiment with single payer. Democrats with- could finally win California. <laughs> no, no, no. I, no, no. I mean, it's not to win California. It's no, to, to resolve intra-party tensions over, like, do Democrats need to embrace Bernie care or can you be for single payer without being like for single payer by saying we're going to facilitate California, Nevada, anybody else kind of experimenting. I, the other thing that I think is, is really important to, to keep in mind here is the difference between the economic cost of a program and the budgetary cost of a program, yep. right? So that something like a universal paid family leave program for the United States would have a large budgetary cost, and it would also have a large economic cost. You would be talking about taking lots and lots of people who are currently working and having them not work because they would instead be at home taking care of children or, or sick relatives. With something like the California plan, you're talking about a gigantic budgetary cost, right? The spending is just huge relative to the current spending of the California state government. But in principle, at least, the economic cost is not that high. And I see people sort of confusing these things in both directions. One is when the uh, appropriation committee analysis came out, there were a lot of like scare studies. Oh my God, this program would cost three times as much as California uh, spending or something. But a lot of that is, as Ezra was saying, just like taking federal spending and like making it state spending. Then a lot of it is, is new taxes. But The reason having the state government of California foot the bill for everybody's medical care would expand the budget a lot is that Californians are already spending an enormous amount of money on on medical care. You're not talking about a huge increase in the actual utilization of resources. But then you get some people uh, like these uh, UMass Amherst economists who I think get like too cute with that. And they start saying things like, well, if you look at all the money that is being pseudo spent through the employer tax exclusion you know we're not really talking about any new money at all um well i mean they're, they they go further right they're saying that the on net the plan will save i think it's eight percent in, in health right, right, so right. actually it's like a net right. net but, know, but but i mean good for everybody the budgetary cost is relevant you know even if it's not the same as an economic cost like the appropriations committee throughout as a like for instance, you could pay for this with a 15% payroll tax increase. And now it's true that if you look at a sort of typical middle-class full-time employed person and you look at, well, how much of your money is implicitly or explicitly going to insurance versus the 15% payroll tax, you're coming out kind of similarly. Um, but there are people on different margins who would come out very, very, very differently, right? So like if you're talking about a 62-year-old who is eligible for Social Security benefits but not yet eligible for Medicare, the difference between um, working and getting health insurance in exchange for working and getting health insurance whether you work or not but paying a 15% payroll tax if you work but not if you don't work, that's like a, a huge difference, right? And there would be a big economic cost in, in something like that. So you don't need to pay for it with a, with a payroll tax. You could pay for it with a value-added tax, a, a kind of sales tax that would be the more European-style way of doing it. Uh, in that case, I think you'd have uh, much less of an economic impact. People still have the same kind of reasons to work. But you would be saying senior citizens who are already getting Medicare are going to keep getting Medicare, but they're going to start paying higher taxes for everything that they buy in order to finance this health insurance program for everyone. To me, that seems like a, like a fine idea. I, I would be all for it. But the politics there are, are tricky, which is just to say that even if you believe that there's going to be no net economic cost to the transition or that there's going to be economic efficiencies, you still have to think about how do you handle the budgetary issue because the way that you handle it makes a big difference. In the in the Amherst paper, they suggest a – I believe it's a 2.3 percent uh, – gross revenue tax gross receipts gross tax. gross receipt tax which is like i think the financing mechanism you pick because you want the number to sound as small so as possible so walk us through what is a gross receipt so, tax. so a gross receipt tax is it's like it's like a barbaric it's <laughs> it, it, in a gross receipt tax you ask a business okay how much stuff did you sell and you're like well you sold you know whatever a million dollars and then you pay a tax on those gross sales right so if you bought like $999 worth of stuff, and then you sold a million dollars worth of stuff and had almost no profit, 
you're now paying 2.3% on your gross revenue and like you're out of business, right? And it encourages- This is a tax on revenue, not just on profit. Yeah, it's a tax on revenue. And so it encourages, it creates like huge distortions because it means that if you can vertically integrate, um, you know, so that your revenue is only taxed once, you're paying a much, much lower rate than if you have like a huge chain of suppliers. And that's why like real countries use a value added tax, which- backs out the expenses and means that how much tax you're paying is, you know, indifferent. And the only good reason I can think of to favor the gross receipts approach over the value added approach is that you just it's not like less tax, but just like a lower. You get that number. nice small number. Yeah. 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 Like, right. You'd rather two point three than fifteen percent payroll. And it reminds me a little bit and of when sales people, tax too. Right. I want to know it. And, and it reminds me a little bit of when people say something like, "Well, you could just lift the cap on." The payroll tax for social security which like it's like you're using words that make it sound small but you're talking about a 12 so i want to pull us out because yeah. the the umass amherst paper which has interesting dimensions to it they are just hypothetically talking about revenue streams there isn't a revenue stream currently identified in the bill but i, I do want to focus on something that is related to, to the point matt makes about sort of budgetary cost versus overall economic cost which is that distinction is true and it is important, and it is something we are very bad at dealing with in politics, and that can't just be wished away. So it, there's a very good Michael Hiltzik column. He's a columnist of the LA Times about the the single-payer plan, and he talks to John Gruber, that John Gruber, <laughs> um, who was involved in Obamacare and then became briefly infamous for weird things he said about Obamacare to synagogue. But he's a very smart healthcare economist, and, and he makes this point that – it is very hard in politics to take implicit spending and move it to explicit spending. Now, should you do it? You absolutely should. Like implicit spending in general, implicit taxation is bad. Like it is not good the way we do it. We are spending all of this money in completely crazy, inefficient ways that people don't know it is even being spent. They cannot see the cost of their health care. They do not feel it. So there is not reasonable pressure to change the cost. Like it, it, the whole thing is fucking crazy. The reason it has been so difficult to change, though, is by fracturing healthcare financing into these weird sort of pockets of the system. Some of it gets paid by the employer, some of it gets paid by the employee, some of it gets put into a tax break, so it's paid by taxpayers. I mean, it's all over everywhere. Any effort to try to like pull it together shocks people, right? It's so big. And they're not – they are feeling it, but the way they're feeling it is through wages they never got. The way they're feeling it is through a tax increase they didn't know came because of that. The way they're feeling it is by spending being cut on programs that would have helped them but are not there anymore. So they don't feel the the, the difference. And so this is just one of these really hard things. I So the, the, the Amherst paper talks a lot about ways in which a system like this could save money. And, and you know, I think a lot of their assumptions are pretty reasonable, actually. There's some I think they're overly optimistic about cutting down wasteful care. But, you know, you could make savings that are significant. Um, I don't think as big as some people wish, but significant on the administrative side. And you could make savings pretty if you just attach to Medicare pricing on the pricing side. I think that's totally reasonable. And so it is not just plausible, but I think probable that a single-payer system would be – a bit less expensive. Now, if you did it the way they're doing it here and just take off all deductibles and cost sharing and let everything be covered, you might have such an increase in utilization that you wipe those savings out. But imagine you just did something more like Canada. It could be cheaper. The thing is, people will not feel that it is cheaper. And 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 we are seeing this right now in Obamacare. So Obamacare has actually come in at this point uh, subsidy-wise – or I'm sorry – um, premium wise, premium wise uh, until maybe roughly this year underneath what people thought it would be at. And and the, the plans really have been able to keep costs relatively down. But the way they have done that is they have jacked up deductibles, they have jacked up co-pays, they have narrowed networks. And even as that has helped keep overall spending growth in the system low, so like the economic cost of Obamacare has been much better than people thought, people are being so faced with it that it is feeling much, much more expensive to them. Um, similarly, employers have had done a better job controlling spending in recent years by increasing cost sharing. That has not felt to employees like their spending is being controlled. And even if some of it is eventually going to come out the other end in wages, that connection is very hard to make. So I don't say this as a – this is not a policy reason not to do this, but it is to me arguably the central 
difficulty in moving towards a more rational healthcare system, we have done such a good job of hiding where the spending is that even if you move to a system that costs 10% less, but you made the spending just like flatly right there in front of you, it's so easy to demonize that and it scares the hell out of people because just they're paying the cost right now, but it doesn't feel like a cost they're paying. Well, I think one of the other things, I think all of that is true, but one of the other things you have to recognize is that it changes who is paying what for mm-hmm. healthcare, particularly if you go the payroll tax financing. And I think this was also comes up in the UMass Amherst paper is that if you are low income, this is probably a good deal for you. You're going to pay less for healthcare. You might not feel it for the reasons you're outlining. But if you're a high income family, like this is unequivocally will feel like more and it will be more like the system is asking you to put more money into the healthcare system and you are going to help finance healthcare for people who otherwise could not afford it. And that's a really, you know, when I covered the Vermont bill, that's really the hard thing that they couldn't get over. That one of the things you're not only putting the costs out there really clearly, but you're asking, you know, high-income people who tend to have more of a voice in a legislature who are able to hire fancy lobbyists to pay more and to contribute more to the healthcare system. And that has perennially challenged single-payer efforts in the United States. If you listen to The Weeds, you probably love to learn. I know I love to learn, and there's really no better way to do that than by watching The Great Courses Plus. They've got a lot of engaging experts, and I want you to discover it too. So they're offering our listeners a full month of free video lectures when you sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. You can learn more about anything, the history of economics, Russia, psychology, or escape into a new hobby like cooking or, or playing guitar. Uh, right now, everyone should watch Thinking About Cybersecurity, From Cybercrime to Cyber Warfare. They've got a cybersecurity expert, Paul Rosenzweig, and he offers uh, insight into digital espionage, computer viruses, and the tools we can personally use to protect ourselves from, from cybercrime. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot about where the sort of the real vulnerabilities are, which they're sort of, they're more human than technical, really, and how to kind of like harden your own habits against cyber vulnerabilities. Um, but there's way more than that. They offer unlimited access to over 8,000 video lectures. You can stream them from any device or you download the videos to watch them offline. Our listeners can get the full month for free free, you just sign up through our special URL to start watching, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Uh, you'll get a full month free. They think you're going to love it. They think you're going to stay signed up. So get your free month. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. One other challenge that also comes to mind, I know, Ezra, you've written pretty frequently on this, is just the fact our healthcare prices are so incredibly high that it makes it hard to get you know, more than I think the Amherst paper estimates 8% savings. I think that's a little bit optimistic because of you're getting rid of like the deductibles and the copays that they do kind of in there, they include, I think, a 15% increase in utilization. I think it would be much higher, uh, particularly with people, what type of care people access. If they're like, you know, if there's no copay associated with going to the emergency room, then you might see some like shifting from like urgent care to like emergent care. But, you know, the kind of big thought I had reading about the California bill, reading the Amherst paper, is it felt like a lot of this could be accomplished through all-payer rate setting. And this is something we've talked about on the weeds. Always comes back to (laughs) all-payer rate setting with you, Sarah. Because basically, like, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create more efficiency in the system and regulate prices. And so, you know, you have this twofold benefit of rate setting, where one, you set rates that are more affordable, and two, there's a lot less administrative work because instead of, like, you know, each health insurance company negotiating their own rate, everyone is paying, you know, $5,000 for the appendectomy or whatever procedure it is. And that seems, you know, like all payer rate setting is like not as exciting. It's not like everyone is enrolled in California care, like we all stay in our health insurance plans. Um, So it doesn't like feel like this big development. And it has this like boring, wonky name. But it really seems like an easier path towards like what the California plan is actually trying to do. If your goal is to make healthcare more affordable, um, you know, reduce the cost of healthcare through um through less um administrative spending, then you can at least hit those. I grant that like you might not get the coverage gains you would get under universal payer, but I think you'd have a plan that would have a better chance of actually moving forward. I think if you disaggregate some of the pieces of this all-payer rate setting, it's like the sprinkle care of single-payer's <laughs> cost control side, right? Like, 
it's like the medic it's like doing medicaid buy-in but for pricing right it's a transition everybody stays in the system like you can reverse it if you need to there's like a dial you can turn up and down um it doesn't like transform the thing overnight but it begins to like get you into a place where you begin to outcompete the previous like when people talk about single pair, they wrap up a lot of different things that actually don't need to coexist in the same system. You could have an incredibly expensive single payer system, right? You could have a single payer system with full coverage of everything you might want to have covered, but basically no cost control at all. That's the California system. <laughs> well, no, in theory they're gonna they're Sorry, gonna control pricing. <laughs> but but imagine they didn't, right? You could just sever the pricing control from mm-hmm. the coverage structure. But you could do that in the other direction too. And all payer rate setting, I think, is a version of like half doing the pricing control without the coverage structure, which if you did that, it would then make doing coverage later easier. To stand up a, a little bit for like the, the basic single payer concept, though, I, I think an interesting thing about thinking about state legislatures, right, is that all of us have been like working in Washington our whole careers, have a sense of what is political realism that is very driven by congressional politics, which themselves have been driven by things like the filibuster, the uh, overrepresentation of relatively conservative, super white uh, rural states in the Senate, the sort of ingrained, not like ideological, but like temperamental conservatism of the leaders of the Democratic Party. And I do think it's it's worth like casting a little bit of that all like aside and say, well, what if we were talking about California, right, which is a state that is super liberal, much richer than the United States. But it's not. I mean, so listen, I agree on the big picture right. you're painting, but I do just want to know California to raise a tax you need a two-thirds majority in the legislature. I mean, I it's understand. a super filibuster. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I, I mean, I understand. And that, that, Arnold Schwarzenegger had an Obamacare-like proposal that failed in California. Right. But so I, mean, just, I, 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 I just uh, want to say we're not that liberal. No, no, no. I, I, but, it's, but I mean, California. look, California has a strong institutional impediment to raising taxes that comes back from the 1970s. But just – if you're thinking about California state politics, I and mean, like what do you want to be advocating in a state that is majority minority, that is more affluent than the average state, um, and that is so comically democratic that you have statewide races between two different Democrats? Like, is there a good reason? Obviously, there are challenges to getting something like this in place, but I don't think there is a good reason if you believe in this on the merits to not be fighting for it. And I actually think it's different in national politics. Like, I think it would have been dumb for Barack Obama to spend 2009 barnstorming the country, talking about Medicare for all. I know some people would have liked it, but like I think that would have genuinely been a waste of a valuable political opportunity for him that he instead used to help some people out. California is a state where whether Jerry Brown is the governor, whether his successor is uh, Gary Newsom or, or Villaraigosa or whoever else, the next governor will continue to work in good faith to try to make the Affordable Care Act structure work as well as is possible given the federal constraints. Uh, their Medicaid program will continue to be relatively generously funded. Um, there's nothing like better to do in the healthcare topic in California than fight for what you think is like really the best possible fix for this. And I do think, you know, uh, this, I, I think the extreme generosity of this proposal comes from the National Nurses Union, who has a, I, I think, somewhat quirky take on all this. And, you know, to pass a bill, obviously, you wind up like you're going to have to bargain down. You're going to have to translate some of these taxes into something that you will call premiums, I think, just like to make the numbers work. You're going to have to probably have some co-payments for something, some kind of deductible for something. I mean, that's like, that's life. But the fact is, is that like we have single payer systems. They are working around the world. California is the kind of scale of political and economic unit that could make it work. And I think that the people who are spending their time on this are using their time well, uh, just as Sprinkle is using his time well in a like a very different political context. Um, and, And I think there's something like, smart about that and that sometimes I do think the activists get get themselves turned around and are, are tilting at windmills, but that's not really what's happening in California. Like it's a it's a big lift, but you know, it's also it's a state where the Democrats have a supermajority in the legislature. So proposing that they do something with it is like a, a pretty good idea. I agree, but but who are you arguing with here? I think it's arguing with me and the all day oh. rate setting approach. Like saying like 
go big or go home, right? Like, or just like, like where like, else are you going to do like, this? Like, go for it, you know? Um, so, so I think I, I think California, and I think actually a lot of states need to be doing a lot more on healthcare. I think it's crazy. Like, this is a crazy, terrible system. It is hurting every state in it. It is weird to me. Like, I've, you guys know, like, have long been a fan of state waiver based um, universal plans, right? I suggested this with the Trump. Uh, campaign should do. I'm a big fan of what is section 1302? 1332. 1332. 1332. State innovation waivers. Which basically nobody has tried to use in Obamacare, except one thing California has put in a 1332 waiver to do is to extend Obamacare to unauthorized immigrants. Just somewhere in a Trump trash can. Yeah, right, yeah, Trump is not doing that. <laughs> but so I think it's actually. I think it would. Re- we really do need to see a lot more innovation for this stuff on the state level. Um, but that said, I don't think that puts these kinds of proposals sort of like beyond critical analysis. I, I think that it's important that I actually think it is important for the success of, of single payer. And, and I tend to be a fan of like nationalized multi-payer models like you see in France. And, and I'm not sure you want to wipe out private insurance to the extent people or you, that you even can like putting some of these things out of business, I just think is going to create so much political um, backlash. It'll just be very difficult. But, um, but I do think it's important then that single payer doesn't become cost prohibitive, right? And and you saw this, by the way, in the campaign too. When when Bernie Sanders ran on Medicare for All, he redefined what Medicare meant to be something that had no deductibles, that had no copays, that covered everything. Uh, that that's nice, but one thing you do if you start playing that game where it's like. This bill came without a financing mechanism because like they were afraid of defining one. It came without any sort of limits on it because they didn't want to they didn't want to create any losers, right? One way to make sure that nobody at Facebook or nobody at um you know pick your uh sort of richer employer is upset about the the, the future is that well if nothing is prohibited then this insurance is better than anything you can have. But of course then the the, the cost gets out of control really 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 quickly. And so I am very interested in the coming couple of years, and I think as single payer becomes more of a dominant uh, political proposal within the Democratic Party, to see what variants of it emerge. Yeah, well, I think one of the struggles you're saying, like we need more state innovation, is kind of where we started. That so much of the money comes from the federal government. That I think one of the things that's really hard for like a state legislator is to decide, like, should I like try and push forward this proposal when I feel like. I'm going to like because these waiver requests, like they take years to write. Like one thing I've thought about the Nevada proposal, you know, even if the Trump administration wouldn't approve it, we're probably talking about, let's say the governor signs it next week, like a year or two of just like writing the waiver and researching it. So at that point, you're at like, you know, 2018. Why does that take so long? It's just really you have to prove to the government that this is going to cost no more than the money you're getting now and cover just as many people. And, like, no one's ever set a premium for what it costs to cover. Like, how do you set a premium for how much it should cost to join Medicaid? Like, that's a hard question that's going to require a lot it of – It used to be you needed a CBO score before you voted out a <laughs> right. bill. So no, I mean – I think this is one of kind of the big forces against states pursuing these kind of waivers is that there are a lot of work, particularly if you're trying to do, like, a novel one no one's ever done before – And, like, the administration might just say no. So you, like, look at this, like, long path of work that might not lead anywhere. And I think that really holds back a lot of states from, um, from, like, pursuing the stuff we're seeing in, like, California or in Nevada. Snacking is a is a fact of life, uh, and with NatureBox, you get to have snacks that that are good, that taste good, but they're also they're made well. They're they're made with good quality ingredients, so you don't feel gross all the time. NatureBox makes snacks with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, artificial flavors, or sweeteners, so you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, my, my personal favorites are the dried white peaches and and the Fuji apples. Uh, they, they've also got some some kind of funner, more more wild stuff out there like masa crisps. It's really interesting, and they made their service better. You can order as much as you want, as often you want, with no minimum purchase required. You can cancel any time. You just go to naturebox.com and you check out their full snack catalog. There's over a hundred different sort of innovative and classic snacks to choose from. They're always adding delicious new options. So you choose what you want. They deliver them right to your door. Uh, you never get bored. There's new stuff to try all the time. And if you get something that, that you don't like for some reason, they'll replace it for free. So right now you can save even more. Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com weeds. That's naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order naturebox.com slash weeds
There's a new paper, Matt. I for for some reason forgot in my notes to write down the the headline and authors. What is it called? It's by, who, it's, it by, by? it's by Jeffrey Brown and Ji Kun Huang called "All the President's Friends: Political Access and Firm Value." It's a it's a good good headline, and basically what this paper suggests is that uh, and and proves in, a, in an interesting way is that for all the Obama administration's talk of you know sort of being locking out special interests and 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 being non corrupt. If you were a corporate executive who was able to get access, routine access to the administration, there were really returns to your firm uh, on that, that, that there was a certain amount of cronyism happening here. So what they did was the White House kept visitors' logs. And they looked at the visitors' logs from 2009 through 2015, and they basically painstakingly matched the names on those logs to corporate executives. And they, there's a whole methodology about what they did with people with the same names as some poor research people. assistant. Yeah, some poor research assistant. This. Like, this looked like a lot of work. Um, and then they they use a number of measures to see what happened to the corporate executives' firms after the White House meetings. And so they find evidence that after meeting with key policymakers, those firms get abnormally positive stock returns um, for 50 days, for 100 days. They find evidence suggesting that following meetings with federal government officials, firms receive more government contracts, which is one mechanism by which they might get those more positive returns, and are also more likely to receive regulatory relief. Well, one interesting thing in the regulatory relief piece of it is that that they are not less likely to get negative regulations, but they are more likely to get sort of positive regulatory rulings. So they still get hit by regulations, but if they're having a regulatory problem, it becomes a little bit more likely that that regulatory problem is about to lift when they when they go in. Um, also, some stuff about they have, they seem to have more certainty about the political environment, and so they're more they make investments. Then they use a 2016 presidential election as a shock to look at what happened to those firms after. And they found that firms with access to the Obama administration experienced abnormally low stock returns compared to their competitor firms following the release of the election result. So there's a lot of interesting stuff in this paper. One of the things I found most interesting, which was persuasive to me, was when they looked at whether meetings with White House officials are followed by positive returns. They also looked at what happened if those officials canceled the meeting and they found the returns went away. So it was actually the meeting. It wasn't um, – now, th there were only so many of those, so it didn't have that much statistical power. Wait, sorry. Power. Can you walk through so – Well, so cause one thing you might think, right, is that you know the Obama administration, it loves solar power. And so because it loves solar power, they have lots of meetings with solar power companies and they also do stuff that's friendly to solar power companies. So this whole meeting thing is a kind of bogus correlation. But so they look at what happens when a meeting goes on the books, but then – the White House has to cancel it at the last minute because schedules shift around. And they show that firms that had meetings that got canceled don't get the stock boost, which the, the quantity of cancellations is not high enough to draw like an incredibly firm conclusion from. But it, it strongly suggests that like it really was what transpired in the meeting that was helping. So the numbers they find in this stuff, they're not tremendous, right? This is not like make or break for companies. But this is, I think, evidence not of something shockingly surprising, but of something people know and find frustrating, which is that if you are a corporate executive who is able to get access to the White House, that gives you a leg up on your competitors. That gives you a hearing. And you don't even need to imagine that this is incredibly sinister what's happening. I mean, Jeffrey Immelt, who's one of the top three um, most common uh, corporate executive visitors, he, he's a head of GE, right? When when they talk, I'm, I'm sure part of it is like they're actually being persuaded by things Jeffrey Immelt says, right? It doesn't – like it, they're not positing that what has to happen here is like somebody walks in with like a sack with like a money sign on it and hands it over. But it does mean that that kind of access is really valuable. Well, and one other thing I think they show in this paper, if I was reading it correctly, is that the people who are getting the most access are those who are already representing larger firms. Mm -hmm. Like that they had a much larger market cap if you look at the folks who are actually yep. getting in there, which kind of reinforces this idea. It's already like not an even playing field. Like the people who are getting in the door are like already a very select group. And then it kind of like it's a bit of a snowball, right? Like you get those positive returns because you got in the door and like you're already a bigger company and you become a little bit bigger. Um, and it feels very self-reinforcing at that point. And I think an important thing about this isn't that – like I don't think the man on the street would be shocked to learn that companies that had good connections with the Obama administration did better financially than companies that don't. But I think like the man not on the street – 
like the man in the ivory tower or like the man sitting in the Obama Foundation office. I think they like would have denied this very strongly. I think that like a, a sophisticated thing to say in recent years has been that part of the problem of like the run amok populism in America is that people actually are overestimating like how corrupt this stuff is and that like political insiders and elites, you know, are are actually good and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, one thing that you are seeing here is that you know, to an extent, the world works the way normal people think that it works and that, you know, politicians spend a disproportionate amount of time listening to certain groups of executives of mostly big companies and that those executives reap economic rewards from that. And that if you uh, own a small business somewhere and, you know, do not have the opportunity to like go get a meeting with uh, assistance to the president, like you are being kind of screwed by how the regulatory state And, and I think it's important because I think that's the key point here in a way that is like a little subtle. So like step back and try to take the uh, optimistic or, or sort of generous view of this. It is obviously the case that major companies, a Honeywell, a GE – have interest before the federal government. It is not crazy the top policymakers would want to talk with them, right, about those questions, right, about things that the policymakers are doing that affect them. It, one of the interesting things about this paper is that it shows that there is some something really happening at these meetings, right? It's not just that there's a generalized affinity. These meetings are, are having some kind of actual output. Sometimes it's regulatory relief. Sometimes it might just be certainty about what's going on, but that is helping the, the, the underlying companies. But that's also not that surprising, right? These companies probably try very hard to get these meetings. When they get these meetings, they're not hanging out and having coffee. They're trying to get something done. Sometimes the case they make is persuasive and they get that thing done. So all of this on some level, it's like how everything works, right? If you like ran an analysis on Vox Media and you looked at like high profile like meetings we have between like our CEO and like high profile policymakers at important partner companies of ours, like it's possible like you would see like a, a positive effect from that. But the thing, even if that is innocent, the problem is not everybody can do it, right? That is a time that is not going to smaller businesses. That is time that is not going to other kinds of players. And so it, it does create this return on bigness in the American economy. And it's return on bigness that, you know, these companies, they, they they run some look at this, like they spend a lot on lobbying, they spend a fair amount on political contributions. Um, and, and it may just be that they are, you know, they, these are folks who in time, at times serve on different boards. It's notable that some of the most uh, frequent visitors, Dave Cody uh, of Honeywell, Jeffrey Immelt of, of GE, Roger Altman of Evercore, these are all very politically involved CEOs, like they serve on boards. Altman had served in the Clinton administration. Like there's uh there are reasons that these might be folks who who um who have a good relationship, but those relationships do matter and not everybody can have them. Right. I really like the phrase kind of like the return on bigness cuz I think that really feels like what is happening in this paper. And I think there's also you know, in part, you are giving information to the Obama administration, but you're also getting information in those meetings. And I think that's also what's making it powerful is like you, unlike the small businesses, like have a sense of like where their head is at, like what is going to happen next. I was a little bit surprised at what seemed like the very immediate, like even before regulatory relief, even before like some kind of, you know, thing happening, like just the meeting itself seemed to be a positive. And I was curious if some of that might reflect like press coverage of a meeting and therefore people think like, oh, that guy's looped in, like his company must be like doing the right thing or, you know, going to be doing quite well because like he had this meeting. Um, I was surprised at how quickly the returns of a meeting, at least this paper suggests, will accumulate to a large company. And I think also that might reflect the sense like, oh, they know what's going on. Like they have an inside view of what the administration is thinking on a particular issue. And that's, um, that's like a hard thing to get. That's like, you know, something you don't can't put a price on, but it's like a very scarce resource. That that also made me wonder if there isn't a, a useful, you know, future investigative angle here related to insider trading, um, which I think we've seen a lot of fishy behavior from from Congress around insider deal making and the speed with which a meeting translates into stock gains it's it seems faster than the pace of like publicly knowable outcomes yeah right so it's like somebody 
who is aware that the meeting has happened is making trades anticipating that the future shape of either investments or regulation or something else will be favorable to the company for, to go within 50 days because that's like the blink of an eye in terms of the like rollout of the federal it, register. It would be very funny if we found out that there were just a bunch of high-speed algorithms that were keyed to release of the White House visitor logs <laughs> just doing crazy things. Well, or even just like uh, a guy stationed outside Pete's like right, taking yeah. photos <laughs> of everybody who comes. Because so, like you can see who goes into the White House. But it's so here's a, a question uh, I have that this paper left me with. I think that this paper intuitively feels bad, right? It, it feels corrupt. It feels like something's wrong. This is not what you want. What is the world where you do not see this result? And is it a better world? Right? So I do not think it is – like the, the individual linkages in the chain here are, are not that crazy. Like it makes sense that um, – I mean the White House meets with a lot of different players. Like nonprofits go in, you know, people who are advocates of like different policy outcomes. I'm sure those meetings are helpful to them too. Um, it doesn't seem crazy the White House does meet with people who run major, major American firms. Um, it does not seem uh, – it, it seems obvious that those meetings will, yeah, on some margin be useful for the firms that have them or else they would never have them. So what what would we have liked to see in this paper? Like what what, what would you – if you were now design, redesigning an administration and you knew this was going on, like where would this take you? Like I, I've been struggling with what the implication is here. So kind of where this would take me, I would – be okay with like, you know, seeing this like positive return on meetings. That doesn't trouble me as much. It's more of like the fact of who is getting in the door that you see these like big market cap companies as the only ones um, or the ones that are at greater frequency getting in. So kind of like if I am designing an administration, it has like specific policies to kind of counteract that, to bring in like other more diverse voices that often like don't have a seat at the table for the similar meetings. And like, maybe they're equally influential. Um, and maybe like they get a boost when, you know, like you, the small business is in there, you know, meeting with a high level official. So I, I'm less troubled by the idea of like meetings with industry shaping um, government policy, but more troubled about like what industries get in, get in the door in the first place. To, to me, this indicates it's one of several things that I've seen recently that indicate that administrations should think a little bit more seriously about revolving door type issues and what's really going on. I think you see a lot of kind of like for show stuff around X year lobbying bans and, and whatever. Um, but the fact of the matter is a lot of people went to work in the Obama administration at various high levels and then you know, they left after a certain amount of time and political operatives. And instead of going to work on, you know, a gubernatorial campaign or, or whatever, they went to go work in corporate America and good for them. Um, but obviously, like part of the value of hiring like former high level colleagues is that it helps gain you entree to their people who are still in there. And this really suggests that you have to be more deliberative about that. That to just say, like, we got a lot of friends of ours working over it wherever, so, you know, they're stopping by. You're having a real influence on things, right? Like, you would not go through a, a year thoughtlessly in which senior White House officials only ever met with white people. Um, or at least a Democratic administration wouldn't do that. I, I don't know if Trump would. Because um, you would just – you would take it seriously. And and I, I guess this is along the lines of what Sarah's saying, but, like – you, I think, have to treat this like rigorously, like who are we meeting with and why? And is this fair? Just like we want like all of our policies to be fair. Like why do we meet so much more with Jeff Immelt than anybody else? Or even much more to the point, Roger Altman. Yeah, right? Roger Altman. Ever core partner is, is an interesting investment firm, a boutique investment firm. But he's just friends with those guys from the Clinton administration. He's not – doing something super important right. in the American and, and, and economy. And there's lots of other investment firms, right? I mean, that's you have some kind of like rule-based system like, okay, mm -hmm. we want to meet with the leaders of X private equity companies because we want to hear what the private equity industry thinks about something is one thing. Another thing is like, oh, our buddy Roger like wants to come by and shoot the shit. But like our buddy Roger also is invested in a million things and like who knows? And he's trying to make money and, you know... It, as you say, right, like there's no good reason to elevate him in particular above a bunch of other investment guys other than that he is 
former colleagues. From well, and it goes it's, it goes further, right? I mean, I know a little bit about the Roger Altman relationship because he was continuously floated for high level economic positions in the Obama White House, and I think probably the reason he didn't get one was he ran an investment firm. Right. <laughs> but one reason people there liked to meet with him is that they actually valued his advice. Right. Right. Like they, he was a talented, he was considered to be a talented economic policymaker from the Clinton years and they valued his advice um, in in the Obama administration. But that actually, while that's on the one hand more innocent, it's on the other hand much more damaging because it's like when the relationship goes two ways, it's a much more sort of natural like exchange of information and it's less weird for him to be, not even asking for anything in particular, but just... This stuff gets very – it gets very complicated very quick. And what – you know, and, and to be fair, like what we're asking for here is for the government to run itself in a way nothing else does, right? Like it, we all take meetings like as reporters, as you know, as, as someone who runs Vox with people who we find to be useful counselors, who people like who maybe are not the literally most important person we could be seeing that day, but we like seeing them. You know, we're asking for more from the government here. But on the other hand, the government is a different animal. I don't know, but I actually think, like, at least as a reporter, there's, like, the same sort of thing where I can, like, meet with, like, people who run insurance companies, like, people who run big lobbies. But if they're the only ones, like, shaping the story, then you're actually, like, missing out. Like, I actually find, like, a closer analogy to reporting I would say here. if we, I mean, I think if we had one of the – someone from the Obama White House for here, they'd say, yeah, but these were not the only people we we're meeting with. I mean, I, my guess is if you – I have not run a search on how often Bob Greenstein came to the White House, but I'm sure it's as much as these people. Um, so they, 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 they met with a lot of people. Like this is just focused on the corporate meetings and like they might – you know, they might say like, oh, look, like we met with – I don't know how often they met with Trumpka from the AFL-CIO, but I'm, I assume it was a lot. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't want I, because I don't have that analysis in front of me. Like I don't want to say they're not doing that. It's not like the only person they're meeting with is Roger Altman, right? I mean, it, but I mean, I do think you know you're saying reporters, you know, to do a good story, like you want to talk to a range of sources. At the same time, naturally, like there are some people who. I talk to like a lot, typically, as Ezra was saying, because I also know them in other – you know, I just like – I have a richer network with some people than with others. And the reason I think that works out OK in journalism is the idea is that like we are not the only three journalists in town. Right. And there's That's lots and lots point. of different people. <laughs> the The unique burden of being the federal government is that there's only one. And so it may be that you just genuinely, you know, like Roger Altman more than other private equity guys and think he's really smart and want to know what he's talking about, uh, which is fine. I mean, everyone should talk to people who they think are smart, but you're biasing not just like you personally, but the whole government. And it's a it's like a weighty responsibility. You know what else is a weighty responsibility? Uh, sharing the joy of the weeds with, with your friends, uh, joining the Weeds Facebook group so you can continue to discuss these and other pressing issues. Is that what you had in mind? That was. It's a, it, 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 it weighs on me. It's a burden I carry on my shoulders when talking to people. One one reason it's such a weighty responsibility to join the weeds is that now, now you're joining possibly the new white paper club we have. So if you enjoyed our conversation about this white paper, uh, I think our Facebook group is facebook.com slash group slash the weeds. Yes. And I'm we'll be discussing wrong. actually the UMass Amherst paper on California healthcare. Yes, exactly. Take, take a look at uh, their, their The op- details are online. Their optimistic take on, on the single payer bill. It's a great opportunity. And we're hoping to, to build uh, White Paper Club up over, over the next several weeks. Um, so going to let uh, let you guys go. Uh, but thanks to our producer, Bert Pinkerton, and to our intern, uh, Carly Citrin, for, for helping out. Um, going to be back on Friday, hopefully talking about uh, James Comey's testimony and other events. <laughs>